It was back in 1995 when I first came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was shortly thereafter when I began to realize that I spent the first 25 years of my life living in deception. That's right, I spent the first 25 years of my life living a lie. You see, my worldview, my political point of view, my goals, and my pursuits, they were all skewed by the deceptive belief that I could actually find meaning in life apart from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I was deceived into thinking that I could find meaning in life apart from a relationship with the one who gave me life. Not only that, but I was also deceived by the belief that hedonism would actually bring happiness. That's what I was told in all the beer commercials. That hedonism would bring happiness, and yet it never did. And what I didn't realize was that this belief was nothing more than a demonic deception that the devil and his demons use in order to carry us away as captives of our own carnal desires. And with that being the case... We shouldn't be surprised to learn that the Bible is actually filled with warnings about these deceptions. That's right, the Bible is filled with warnings, helping us to understand how easy it is for us to be deceived. For example, it's in Galatians chapter 6 where Paul declares, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. James also encouraged us to avoid being deceived. As a matter of fact, it's in James chapter 1 where he declares, Do not be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. In Matthew chapter 24, the Lord Jesus also warned us about the deception that would come upon this world in the last days. And he did this by declaring, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. That's right. The last days will be a time of great deception. And as we consider the warnings that we find in the scriptures about being deceived, well, there should be no doubt that the devil and his demons are here to deceive us. The devil is the great deceiver and he wants believers to be deceived. Well, it's here in our text today where we find another one of these warnings. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we're going to begin to see, first of all, that Paul was warning us about the deception of the last days, which will end up causing apostasy. Paul also warned us about the deception of the last days, which will end up causing idolatry. Thirdly and finally, we'll see Paul warning us about the deception of the last days, which will cause calamity. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we find Paul. He's describing the days which will culminate in the return of our Redeemer. And as you make your way to the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Paul began this chapter uh, by addressing the concerns of the Christians who had been duped into believing that they had missed the day of the Lord. And as we saw In our study last Sunday, Paul wanted to assure his audience that the second coming of Christ was still yet future tense. Well, now here in our text today, we find Paul. He's equipping the Christians there in Thessalonica 
And he did this by providing them with more details about the end time events, which will culminate in the return of our Redeemer, Jesus. And with all this in mind, let's pick up our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 3. Here Paul declares, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the original recipients of this epistle to understand that they needed to be on guard. They needed to be on guard, especially against the false teachers who were already there in the first century leading people astray. And it's for this reason that Paul declared, let no one deceive you by any means. Let no one deceive you by any means. That word deceive, well, it's found there uh, in the beginning of verse 3 there. It's it's translated from a Greek word which was uh, used of those who would seduce others with half-truths and whole lies. In the context of this passage, Paul was referring to the false teachers who were leading people to believe that the day of the Lord had already come. And so Paul was saying, hey, don't let these false teachers deceive you. Don't let these false teachers lead you away. As a matter of fact, look with me again, beginning at verse 3. Here again, Paul declares, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless... The falling away comes first. In other words, he's saying, look, that that day, the second coming of Christ, the return of our Redeemer will be preceded by a falling away which will be notable and obvious. You you don't have to guess about the second coming of Christ because as we saw last week, it's going to be like lightning that flashes from the east to the west. So it's going to be visible. And not only that, but it's going to be notable because there is going to be a falling away that takes place first. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the phrase falling away, it's translated from the Greek word apostasia. And in, the, in, in this context, the, the Greek word apostasia, it's used of those who defect from or turn away from what is true. What this means is that the second coming of Christ will be preceded by a great apostasia or apostasy as many in the church begin to abandon their faith. It's for this reason the scholars who created the Christian Standard Bible, they render the beginning of verse 3 in this way. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. In similar fashion, the scholars who gave us the New American Standard Bible, they translate the Greek in this way, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. We can look back to 1867 when John Nelson Darby rendered the original Greek in this way, let not anyone deceive you in any manner, because it will not be unless the apostasy have come first. Now, as we consider these translations, there should be no doubt here that the second coming of Christ is going to be preceded by a notable 
and obvious apostasy as believers begin to fall away from their faith. And in order to better understand the nature of this apostasy, I want to take some time to consider a warning that Paul presented to a pastor named Timothy. And so with this as the focus, hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, as you're making your way to the fourth chapter of 1 Timothy, I should first take a moment to point out that the word apostasy, it not only refers to disciples who are defecting from the faith, but those who fall away from the faith will oftentimes be led astray by the heretical teachings of false teachers. And it's sad to say that the deception of the last days is going to be something that is so convincing that it's going to cause many Christians to begin embracing doctrines of demons. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. As a matter of fact, look with me there beginning at verse 1. Here Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul. He's presenting Pastor Timothy with a warning that comes straight from the Holy Spirit. And according to the Spirit of the Lord, there's going to be these latter days, or we might say the last days or the end times It's in the end times when there's going to be uh, this great apostasy as disciples depart from the faith and give heed to doctrines of demons. They're going to turn away from the truth while simultaneously embracing the doctrines of demons. And, And it might be hard for you to believe, but that's exactly what's going to happen. The great apostasy which is going to come before the it's going to happen before the second coming of Christ it's going to be instigated by deceptive doctrines as demons are using false teachers to lead Christians away and it seems to me that we're currently watching this apostasy happening right before our very eyes i believe that we are watching this apostasy taking place right before our very eyes proof of my point well, it can be seen in the fact that there are churches like Bethel and Hillsong and other sorts of charismatic groups that are happy to team up with the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church will tell you that all Protestants are anathema, meaning accursed, you know, because we don't believe in their communion. We don't believe that a cracker turns into the body of Jesus and the grape juice or, or wine turns into the blood of Jesus. So we don't believe that. And so they say we're anathema, that we're accursed. And yet there's untold numbers of charismatic churches out there who are happy to team up with the Catholic Church in order to go out and present two different gospels, one in which Jesus has finished the work, one in which he hasn't. And they're going to work together presenting the world with two different gospels. Why? Apostasy. Not only that, but there's a growing list of churches that are embracing uh, you know, uh, queer theology and, and along with it, the sexual immorality of the LGBT movement. This includes the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, 
and the Presbyterian Church USA. There's the United Methodist Church that now allows the ordination of transgender clergy. And then there's the Reformed Church in America that allows gay pastors to serve congregations, providing they were ordained in another denomination. So yeah, they're not willing to ordain those who are openly gay, but if you so happen to be ordained in another church, you can serve as a pastor in the Reformed Church in America. It's ludicrous. And in light of these things, there's no doubt in my mind that the church is sliding down the slippery slope of apostasy as they embrace doctrines of demons. One reason for why we're watching this happen here at this point in time in church history, well, it's because the majority of our churches here in America are being led by pastors who don't really believe the Bible. Proof of my point can be found in a study that was recently conducted. It was conducted just last year by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And according to their research, only 37% of Christian pastors in, in the United States actually has a biblical worldview. They all have worldviews, but only 37%, according to their research, actually have a biblical worldview. And listen, this research was based on 54 worldview-related questions. And after they sent out this survey with these 54 worldview-related questions, you know, after the research was done and, and they, they tallied the score, what they discovered is this, that 62% of the pastors here in the U.S. have predominantly syncretistic worldviews. Think about that. 62% of the pastors here in the U.S. have a worldview which contains some, some parts Bible, but other parts other world religions. They've created a worldview that is biblical in some ways. They, they've, they've adopted the parts that they like, but then they throw out the rest and adopt other beliefs that come from false religious systems, thereby creating a syncretistic worldview, which is not true. And as we look at the numbers, what we discover is that more than half of the churches here in America are being led by an apostate pastor. Well, guess what those pastors are teaching their congregation? Apostasy. With that being the case, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that the deception of the last days will continue to cause apostasy as many in the church are being led astray by doctrines of demons that are being taught by their pastor. <clears throat> now, in, <clears throat> in order to understand how we can avoid this demonic deception, I want to consider the instructions that Paul presents to Pastor Timothy uh, in his second epistle to Timothy. So hold your place there in 2 Thessalonians, and let's turn our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, you see, it's here in the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy where we find Paul. He's describing the days when those who claim to follow Christ will no longer be interested in listening to sound doctrine. And with that being the case, Paul presents Timothy with a, uh, with a simple set of instructions for solving this problem. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Here in these verses we find Paul describing the days when those who are attending the local church will no longer be interested in Bible studies that contain sound doctrine. And you should know that there are churches, many here in Austin, who think that the word doctrine is actually a dirty word. That when you start talking doctrine to other believers in certain churches, that, that they think you're just you know, being too judgmental and too strict and too biblical. They don't like it. Then there are those who you know, might show up to a biblically-based church, but then they grow weary of hearing Bibles. Oh, is that a Bible study today? We're going to do another Bible study? Gosh, I mean, there, there's the big church down the road is having a movie event this Sunday. They're doing a whole sermon series based on the Mario Brothers. They're going to do a video series based on the Barbie movie. It's going to be fabulous. And that's what they want. They, they, they want church to be like the movies. They want to be able to show up with their snacks, you know, and they, they, they don't want to sit through a Bible study where they're being convicted. They don't want to sit through a Bible study where they're being rebuked. You know, when Paul says that he should preach the word and that it should convince, rebuke, and exhort... Well, they like the third one. They like the exhortation part. They don't want the convincing and the rebuking, though. But according to Paul here, every Bible study should be two-thirds rebuke and convince, and, and then some exhortation maybe at the end. No, they, they, they want entertainment. They want a pastor to entertain them. Listen, I can guarantee you, you are not going to be entertained at Calvary South Austin. Try as hard as I might. And listen, if you're looking for something watered down, see me after church and I'll give you a list, of, uh, a list of places that you can go. There is no shortage of watered down churches here in central Texas. Sadly, pastors are tempted to water it down because that's how you get the big numbers. You want to get people in the, in the seats and you want to keep them there, you got to entertain them. You've got to avoid the tough topics. I don't know how to do that. So I had someone the other day tell me, your church is just going to get smaller and smaller. I said, oh, probably. Probably. But I'm not here to attract large crowds. I'm here to preach the word. And whether it's in season or out of season, or in other words, whether it's popular to do so or not, whether it's on trend or not. We're to continue preaching the word, whether people want to hear that or not. With that, it's important for us to realize that the Christian who prefers fictional stories to 
Bible studies. These are the believers who end up sliding down the slippery slope of apostasy. And so if you want to avoid the demonic deception that's taking place here in these last days, I encourage you, plug in and receive biblical instruction, which is based in sound doctrine, the sort of sound doctrine that convinces and rebukes and exhorts according to the will of God. Well, I realize that there are going to be times when the truth of God's word is difficult for us to hear. It's better for believers to receive the difficult doctrines of God's word than it is for us to end up being deceived by doctrines of demons as we're led into apostasy. Now, this brings us to our second point because, listen, the deception of the last days will not only cause apostasy, but the deception of the last days will also result in idolatry. And to make my case, let's make our way back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You see, it's here in our text today where we find Paul warning us about the idolatry which will be brought forth by the Antichrist. And with this as the focus, let's back up here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's take another look, beginning at verse 3. Here Paul declares, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, Uh, Here in this passage, we find Paul. He's helping the Christians at the church in Thessalonica to understand that the day of the Lord will not only be preceded by a time of apostasy in the church, but the day of the Lord will also be preceded by the rise of the Antichrist, whom Paul describes here as the man of sin and the son of perdition. Now, in order to place these end-time events in proper order, it'll help you to know that the apostasy happens first, Uh, There is an apostasy that happens in the church. Then the rapture of the church will take place, followed by the rise of the Antichrist, which culminates in the return of Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn more about the order of these events in our study next week. But for the sake of our study today, we're going to consider the character of the Antichrist. And with this as the focus, let's consider the two titles that Paul presents here in our text today. Notice again there in the middle of verse 3. There again, Paul refers to the Antichrist as the man of sin. Now that word sin is translated from a Greek word which speaks of those who violate the divine law of the Lord. Now now consider this in contrast to the true Christ, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the holy and righteous one who came and accomplished the will of God the Father. The Antichrist is the man of sin who comes to violate the law of the Lord. And so we see how this is the Antichrist, not the true Christ. We should also notice there in verse 3 that Paul declares this. He says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, unless the falling away comes first. That's the apostasy. And then the man of sin is revealed. So there's going to be this revealing of the man of sin that we're going to consider next week. But then he calls him this, the son of perdition. Now think about that for a moment. Christ Jesus is the son of God. And in contrast to this, Paul refers to the Antichrist as the son of perdition. Clear contrast between these two characters. That word perdition refers to the everlasting destruction that will occur forever in the endless misery of hell. And while Jesus is the only begotten son who brings life to those who trust in him, the Antichrist, who will be indwelt by the devil, 
He will bring death, everlasting destruction to those who worship him. And in order to further grasp the character of the Antichrist, let's consider a few more titles that we find in the Bible. It's in Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 25. There the prophet Ezekiel declares, Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Now, here in this verse, we find Ezekiel describing the Antichrist as the profane and wicked prince of Israel. In other words, the Antichrist will be an Israelite. He will be. And and another proof of this is found in the fact that the Jews will see him as their Messiah. Well, the Jews believe that the Messiah is going to come from the lineage of David. Clearly, he's got to be an Israelite. He is the prince. He's called the wicked prince of Israel. So we know, he's not, we know he's not the prince of peace. The true Christ is the prince of peace. The Antichrist will be the wicked prince of Israel. The Antichrist will prove himself to be a prince of wickedness. And in, in order to prove my point, let's consider the title that the prophet Daniel uses as he describes the day when the Antichrist will speak pompous words against the Almighty. It's actually in Daniel chapter 7. There the prophet Daniel declares, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth that was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, here in these verses, we find the prophet Daniel. He's describing this day when this final beast will rise up from the sea. And just to be clear, this beast is actually a world system that the Apostle John talks about in more detail in the book of Revelation. But this final world system is going to be ruled by ten horns, which are actually kings. And from the midst of these ten kings, another little king will rise up and take control of a global government after getting rid of three of the previous of the ten. And it's this little horn or this little king who will begin to speak pompous words against the king of kings as he begins to command the people of this world to come and worship him as their savior and even as their God. And in this way, we can see how the last day's deception will eventually result in idolatry. In order to grasp the way that the Antichrist will rise to power and and force everybody to worship him, I want to consider another title that Daniel presents in Daniel chapter 11. It's here where the prophet Daniel declares this. He says, there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. In other words, we find Daniel here describing this day when the Antichrist will remove one of the final rulers who's standing in his way. And according to Daniel, he's going to be this vile person who shall come in peaceably as he seizes the kingdom by intrigue. 
while it's true that many will believe that, that this is the Antichrist or, the, the, or they, they're going to believe that, that this individual is the promised Messiah, I should say, it's also true that this vile person will quickly uh, command every person to worship him as if he were God. And to prove my point, let's consider another title that the prophet Daniel presents here in the same chapter. It's in Daniel chapter 11. Here the prophet declares this, Then the king shall do according to his own will, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Here in these verses we find the Antichrist being referred to as the willful king. And as the willful king, well, there's coming a day when he will exalt and magnify his will above anything that is called God. And according to Daniel, this willful king is going to speak blasphemies against the true and living God as he willfully exalts himself above the king of kings. And in this way, well, the Antichrist is going to lead people into idolatry as he commands everyone to come and worship him. And listen, This is precisely the point that Paul is making here in our text today. Now, with this as the focus, let's take a closer look here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you will, let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 3. Here again, Paul declares, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who, notice, opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Here in these verses we find Paul describing this day when the Antichrist will begin to exalt himself above all that is called God. And not only that, but he will also exalt himself above anything that is worshipped. And if that's not bad enough, he will end up entering the temple of God, which will be there in Jerusalem as he sets out to convince the world that he is God. Now, this is nothing more than idolatry. It's wicked idolatry. And yet it's at that point in time when a false prophet will come along and command every person to worship the Antichrist and to do this by receiving the mark of the beast in their right hand or in their foreheads. Here's how the Apostle John puts it in Revelation chapter 13. There he declares, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. 
Now, here in these verses, we find the apostle John. He's describing this day when the false prophet who serves the Antichrist will come along and command every person to worship the man of sin and the son of perdition. And according to the vision that John receives here, this act of worship is going to include the reception of some sort of mark, which is going to be placed within the right hand or within the forehead. Now, I can't say for sure what this mark is going to be, but it seems to me that this is probably going to be some sort of implanted biochip. And and while there are biochips that you can implant today, it's important to understand that this certain mark won't be available until the rise of the Antichrist, which is after the rapture of the church. So because the church is still here, you know, I have a hard time believing that this biochip is actually available to anybody here today. The reason I point this out is because, listen, the mark of the beast is going to be received as an act of worship to those who are submitting themselves to the Antichrist. You can't get around that. It will be an act of worship to receive this mark. And it's important to put this out there because, listen, I, I recognize that over the last couple of years since the pandemic began and since the vaccine was made available, there have been many alarmists who have come along and assured us that the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. If you took the, if you took the vaccine, you took the mark of the beast. And, and, and they want, you know, it, 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 it irritates me because it just doesn't line up with the scriptures. Please uh, allow me to assure you that this experimental injection is not the mark of the beast. Now, don't hear me saying you should go, you know, receive this. I, you know, that's your choice. But, you know, I, I don't want to be experimented on myself. But, uh, but it's not the mark of the beast. The people who received this experimental vaccine weren't required to bow a knee to the Antichrist. No, instead, they simply agreed to receive an injection, which has resulted in more than a million reports of adverse reactions to the CDC's Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. (sighs) At the same time, I can't help but to wonder, is this all part of a greater plan, which is preparing people for the mark of the beast? That's something that that I can line up with there. I do think that this is all in preparation to get people ready for the mark of the beast, all the while realizing that that's going to be something that takes place after the rapture of the church. So, you know, I'll be gone. Hopefully you will be too. But with all this in mind, I want to consider a warning that John presents in 1 John chapter 2. It's here in verses 18 and 19 where the apostle John says this. He says, little children... It is the last hour. Now think about that. This is John writing in the first century, and it's already the last hour. So where are we today? In the last minutes of the last hour? That's what I think. But he says, little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. According to the Apostle John, we can be certain that the Antichrist is coming and, and soon. 
at the same time, it's also important to understand that the Antichrist is not currently here. He's not here currently enforcing his idolatry. That won't take place until after the rapture of the church. And yet, at the same time, even at the, there in the first century, many Antichrists with a, uh, with a lowercase a uh, were already in the world at that point in time, and we know that they're already in the world today. And much like the Antichrist, all of the little wannabes who are among us today well, they're doing their best to prepare for the arrival of the Antichrist. They uh, are trying to dupe us into submitting ourselves over to their idols. They want us to worship their idols of gold. You know, they want us to, to worship their idols of silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Yeah, they're trying to, to take Christians. They're trying to mold us into uh, their, their uh, belief system. And with that being the case, we would all do well to become those believers who are submitting to our Savior, Jesus Christ, before we go and submit ourselves to these little antichrists who want us to submit to them. And with that, you know, it's important to understand that the deception of the last days, it will cause apostasy. And not only that, but after the rapture, the last days will cause more idolatry. And finally, the deception of the last days will cause calamity. And to make my case, let's continue to consider the warning that Paul presents here in 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you would look with me here again at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll begin reading again at verse 3. Here Paul again declares this. He says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, uh, here in these verses, we find Paul encouraging the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica to remember all the things that he explained to, the, to, to him, uh, to, to them, while, uh, you know, while he was there with them. And I wish we had a recording of those Bible studies. I wish we had a recording of the studies that Paul presented to those Christians, but we don't. What we do have is a time machine that we're going to get into really quick. And now we, what we have is a written, re- some of you guys got real excited. <laughs> a time machine, you say. Seriously, we have a written record of the teaching that he presents here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is basically the same thing that he was saying when he was there with those believers. And it's here in this study where we learn that the day of the Lord is going to be preceded by the abomination of desolation, which will bring calamity upon this world. Just to be clear, the abomination of desolation is going to occur on the day when the Antichrist enters the third temple And he's going to sit in the temple of God, showing himself and everybody else that he is God, or at least he thinks he is. The angel Gabriel actually described this day in Daniel chapter 9, where we learn about the the way in which the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with many for one week of years, or in other words, seven years. But in the middle of the seven years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And you say, what are you talking about, Gabriel? 
The angel Gabriel is presenting the prophet Daniel with a prophecy that points to a seven-year tribulation, which will begin with the confirmation of a covenant, which then takes place shortly after the rapture of the church. So, so the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and that's when the Antichrist will rise up, take control of a global government, and he will confirm a seven-year covenant. And three and a half years after he confirms the seven-year covenant with many, that's when the Antichrist ends up bringing calamity upon the nation of Israel as he commits the abomination of desolation. We actually find further confirmation of this in Daniel chapter 12. There, another unnamed angel comes along and declares, Go your way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now here in these verses we find another unnamed angel He's informing Daniel about the abomination of desolation, which is going to be set up there in the temple there in Jerusalem. And according to this prophecy, this event is going to occur 1,290 days after many are purified, made white, and refined. Now, what does that sound like? Sounds to me like the rapture of the church followed by 1,290 days when finally the abomination of desolation takes place. And just to be clear, 1,290 days is actually three and a half years according to a Jewish year. And so it's the middle of the tribulation when the abomination of desolation is set up. And as the Antichrist sets up the abomination of desolation there in the temple, this will bring calamity upon the people of God. The Lord Jesus confirms this in Matthew chapter 24. It's there where he declares, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's describing the days when the people there in Israel will be forced to flee from their homes. And while there are many who insist that all this was fulfilled back in 70 AD during the days when Titus raised Jerusalem to the ground, we must not fail to notice that Jesus describes this as the greatest tribulation that this world will ever see. He says it's the, it's the great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world No, nor ever shall be. There will never be a greater tribulation than this that will ever happen after this. Now, I have no doubt that the Roman invasion of Jerusalem was was horrific and terrible. And yet we can be certain that Adolf Hitler 
who himself was a little antichrist, created greater calamity during the Holocaust of World War II than Titus did back in 70 AD. So just based on Jesus' description alone, it would be ludicrous to think that what happened in 70 AD was the end of it all. For more on that, go back and listen to last, the last week's study on the problems with preterism. But listen, you know, what happened during World War II is nothing compared to what's about to happen after the abomination of desolation. Based on this alone, we can say for certain that the great tribulation which will follow the abomination of desolation is still yet future tense. And according to the angel Gabriel, this event will occur in the middle of the seven-year tribulation after the Antichrist enters the temple of God and breaks the covenant, the seven-year covenant that he made with many people. What this means is that there must be a third temple there in Jerusalem. There's no temple on Temple Mount at this point in time, but there, there must be a temple for the Antichrist to enter into. Therefore, we're, we're expecting to see a temple being built sooner than you might imagine. You might be interested to know that right now, the red heifers necessary for cleansing Temple Mount are currently in Israel. One is already on display at a heritage site in ancient Shiloh where the tabernacle once stood. Two more are on the way. They have the red heifers necessary for making the ashes that they need to cleanse and, and purify Temple Mount. So yeah, you, you think they're, they're going to build a third temple? <laughs> we, can, we can bank on it. Not only that, but it is interesting that the UN is gearing up to confirm their 2030 climate agenda, which this year is seven years away. The UN is hosting their SDG summit this September, which will include a recommitment to their 2030 agenda. That they came up with that back in 2015. And this year, for some reason, they've decided to confirm that covenant, which will make it a seven-year covenant at this point, to establish their sustainable development goals, which promise you know, peace and safety for every citizen of the United Nations. Now listen, I don't know if this is the seven-year covenant that Gabriel mentioned. But it is interesting to remember what Paul said back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where he declares, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Interesting. I guess we'll see you know, in, in September how all this plays out. Well, listen, as we consider the calamity which is going to be caused by these dark days of deception, we can rejoice in the promise that Jesus presented in John chapter 8 where he declares this, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Please trust me when I tell you that these last days will be a time of demonic deception. And that is true before the rapture of the church, just as it will be even worse afterwards. These last days are a time of demonic deception. And it's for this reason that I encourage every Christian to take this seriously. 
We need to abide in the word of God so that we can walk in the light of the truth. And while I realize that the truth of God's word can be difficult to to understand, it can be hard to receive and even more painful to apply, I encourage you to realize that the disciples of Christ, uh, we've been called to become those believers who are receiving the discipleship that we need so that we can continue abiding in the truth of God's word because this is how we avoid the demonic deceptions which are leading many into apostasy. It's crucial for Christians to continue receiving discipleship because disciples are those who be discipled. Are you being discipled? Do you have a a leader in your life, a believer who is discipling you? Because if not, then why would you call yourself a disciple? Disciples are those who are being discipled. And that's my challenge to you, that we should all become believers who are being discipled by those who can help us to abide in the word of God. It's crucial for Christians to continue receiving discipleship so that we can avoid all of the deceptive distractions of these last days' deceptions. And with this as the goal, I just take a moment to remind you, the deception of the last days will cause apostasy. The deception of the last days will end up causing idolatry. And then finally, the deception of the last days will cause calamity. And in light of all these things, I just want to remind you of the encouragement that Paul presented when he declared, let no one deceive you by any means. Now think about that for a moment. Let no one deceive you. If we turn that on its head, doesn't that also seem to suggest that you might also let someone deceive you? It is possible, Christian, for us to let someone deceive us. The choice is yours. Will you let someone deceive you here in these last days? Please trust me when I tell you that it's your responsibility to make sure that you aren't being deceived. Therefore, rather than living your life like an unbeliever who is just oblivious to the truth of God's word, I encourage you to walk in the light of biblical truth so that we can then avoid the demonic deceptions that are coming upon this world here in these last days. Let's pray.